0: welcome to the eco interviews where we amplify the voices of eco warriors from across the world My name is Fiona Martin, and I started the eco-interviews as a way to speak to people who are involved in helping tackle the climate crisis we find ourselves in. I'm super excited to share this episode with you. From previous episodes, you may remember us talking about regenerative agriculture with Chris Jones, permaculture with Stephanie Gibson, and the need for a younger generation to get into farming with David Harper. Well, I was so happy to be introduced to Chase Reniger and Alyssa Ferguson, owners of Woodland Valley Farms in Jackson, South Carolina. Chase and Alyssa raise cows, hogs, chickens, ducks, and other animals, along with cultivating a veggie patch and growing mushrooms. Chase holds a degree in agroecology and sustainable community development and started Woodland Valley Farms in 2016 as his very own regenerative permaculture farming experiment. Alyssa joined him, bringing with her her vast knowledge in raising chickens and pigs and her culinary experience from working in restaurants. In my chat with Chase, he talks us through the principles of regenerative ag, how they use them on the farm, and also a bit about the business behind the farm. We talk about the effect COVID-19 has had on our food supply and how our centralized food systems leave us susceptible to breakdowns like this in the future. Finally, I was able to visit Chase and Alyssa on the farm and it was great to see these principles in action and in person. Previous podcast guest Chris Jones gave me the challenge to go out and meet a farmer. I've met a few since then and very much enjoyed being in the presence of two young optimistic regenerative farmers in South Carolina. I encourage you to make contact with your local farmers. For now, enjoy this episode. Okay, welcome Chase. We're with Chase Raniger from the Woodland Valley Farms. How are you doing today, Chase?
1: I'm doing terrific.
0: Awesome, we're really I got all my
1: chores done, so I'm happy about that.
0: Good, and it's a super hot day in South Carolina, so I'm sure you're happy you got that done before noon. Hopefully.
1: Oh yeah. Um, well, I guess we could start with a little bit of background about me and the farm. Yeah. So I think about ten years ago, um, I was studying uh, wildlife biology. And uh, wildlife conservation in uh, college, and you know, came to the conclusion that the majority of conservation and wildlife-based issues and habitat corridor depletion issues are really due to farming, pra- farming and ranching, and you know, natural resource practices that we have. That goes from everything from ranching to vegetable grain production timber production all of those things are within the scope of agriculture and they all affect conservation and wildlife based issues and I figured at that point I was 19-20 years old that you know I had to go into this career field to be able to influence other farmers and ranchers and things like that and it took me down a rabbit hole into uh, permaculture and this concept of regenerating land. So what permaculture is, it's a, well, if you look at the entomology of it, perma meaning permanent, culture meaning our culture, our civilization, our society and or agriculture. Civilization doesn't exist without agriculture. People need to eat. So when you put those two things together, objective of this philosophy is to create a civilization and society of permanence because we're currently not living in a state of permanence. Everything is based on a natural resource depletion and extraction methods and the farming methods that we're using are regenerative. So it actually improves the quality of soil. It improves the quality of water. We can increase You know, our footprint in a really good way from what we're doing on on the farm. So let's see here. So I went back to school and I uh, ended up studying what's known as agroecology. And my general focus was on permaculture, but agroecology is the study of how. Ecology, natural systems flow into agricultural-based systems, how they're affecting one another, and there are many different aspects to that. Um, And my minor was in sustainable community development, so building infrastructure within communities to allow for this transition into a world of permanence and regeneration You know, not just the land, but also including social justice issues with people who need access to clean water and clean food and good housing and education and the basics that sometimes are not meant. You know, in our country, in many countries throughout the world. So I just felt obligated to do what I can and change the world. So I started that journey ten years ago. I farmed for many people. I managed farms. I did consulting, um, I did irrigation installation, heavy machinery operation, all of these different things that kind of go into farming. So I pieced all of this education together for myself over like a six year period or something where I went to college, but I was also, um, you know, getting involved with learning trade skills. So like plumbing and irrigation work, I I know how to do all of that. Um, the carpentry aspect of things. I worked for a carpentry company for like a year to be able to be a proficient builder. Um, I started working on vehicles and working with truck and tractor engines and mechanics and stuff like that. So I took it upon myself to build the skill sets necessary to become a farmer because just just because you're a sustainable farmer and a lot of people come into this career path uh, without the necessary skills, they just, on a whim, they want to become organic farmers, they want to change the world in some way, but they do not have the practical skill set to allow them to be successful at that career. Most farmers, through generations, have had all of those skills and that knowledge passed down from their forefathers and it allowed them to be really good farmers, but we don't have that anymore. 1% of the population are farmers of that 1% of the 1% are organic farmers. So we simply just do not have enough people in agriculture and the people who are in currently in agriculture, the majority of them are over the age of 50, 60, 70 years old. They hold all of the land And people who are younger, unable to actually get into this career field, A, because it's, uh, you know, it's a very difficult job. But the land access is a huge issue. The access to all the resources, it costs a lot of money, a lot of capital to do this. And when you screw up, which is inevitable as a farmer, it costs tens of thousands of dollars. It could cost a hundred bucks, but it usually costs a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's just a barrier of entry for many people. It's not just a class race thing, but it, um, it it really affects everybody who could potentially get in farming because of all these things.
2: Mm.
1: So I took all the knowledge I possibly could during, you know, my whole life. And then I decided to put that into practice with starting my own business. And I partnered with several people to allow me to start the farm, one of which is my uncle. And he owns a lot of land. He actually does land conservation. So it allowed me to become a farmer. If it wasn't for him, I would never be able to do this because he owns a ton of land and he's an environmentalist. He really believes in land conservation and agricultural conservation but he had nobody there to kind of do it the right way. So some of these fields were uh, genetically modified, soy and wheat and corn and things like that. So we're actively repairing the soil and stuff from these damaging agricultural practices. Um, My partner, Alyssa, she runs half the farm. She does almost everything that I do. Um, I usually tend to do the infrastructure and more technical build-out things, um, and she's doing a lot of the interacting with our customers and communications and on-the-ground work. She is a master pig farmer, and she does a lot with our pigs. Um, so, a little bit about the farm. That um, so yeah, we started the farm about five years ago, and it was just me when I started. I was out on this land living out of a canvas tent and built this farm from the ground up. It's 200 acres. Um, I put all the irrigation lines in. I've done electrical work on the property. We've rebuilt the barns to the best of our ability. Like we've done a ton of work at this property and um, all the people involved are really proud of what they've done. We also brought a group of people in, some friends of ours, and they started their own mushroom operation on our farm. So we have a bunch of different people who are involved. We have a garden manager, Joey. Um, He's terrific. He's done so much work with us this year, allowed us to expand our CSA. We have my dad. I brought my father who retired into the farm. So we made it a community farm kind of. Um, And everybody does their own thing there. We all play our parts and it's really great. We get together for lunch almost every single day. We always have community lunches that's all grown on the farm because we grow all of our own food. So, there, uh, I can't rave about the lifestyle that we've kind of created. Um, it's terrific, but it came with a lot of struggle in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so, our farm is based upon um, this ecological model, right? So, we have animals that take up every single different ecological niche. So for example, bison, elk, deer, these animals are undulates and they digest grass and forages and things like that. And they cause disturbance in an ecosystem through grazing and movement and motion. And we create that in our agro ecosystem with cattle and sheep and goats. And then in another disturbance pattern we also use pigs so we use our pigs to do composting which I'll get into in a little bit We use pigs to disturb the forest to help to prevent forest fires um, to cause different effects of disturbance um, such as you know rooting up trash from an old disturbed lot or you know they, we can leave them in for a really long time and then we can establish a new understory um, of certain plants in this given area. So they're a tool for us to just heavily disturb an area. And we have the chickens and the chickens, our, they kind of act as our cleanup crew. So they keep all the flies and maggots and all the stuff that might accumulate from manure. Um, They keep that away from the barn and the same with the ducks. They do that as well. So we have everything kind of in rotation. All these animals, they're never in one space. They're always constantly moving, like any animal in nature is in constant motion. And we replicate that constant motion through what's known as rotational grazing practices. So the gist of rotational grazing is that if you rotate animals, then you will have less parasites, Or no parasites, and you will not have to use deworming medication on your animals, which has an immense health benefit for them and for us. Mm. It also allows those animals to have constant access to fresh water every day, fresh grass every single day, so they're not eating their own manure. They're not eating grass that they don't want to eat. They eat stuff that makes sense for them, which gives them innate health and wellness, and also it allows us to make money because farmers focus on the bottom line all the time, which most people who are using grain, when it comes to cow feeding operations, they want to put weight on their cows really fast. And a rotational grazing operation allows us to put a lot of weight on our cows very quickly because they always have really tall, thick, lush grass to graze on. So we always have that abundance of grass To be able to feed them um what else am i forgetting here the sheep we are actually breeding a parasite resistant hair sheep so we've imported um you know not me personally but many farmers have imported these caribbean hair sheep um, from st croix and barbados and some of these other caribbean islands and they're extremely parasite resistant because of the heat there and they're already adapted to eating more coastal type grasses so in our particular ecosystem we have coastal grass it's like almost subtropical now with climate change (laughs) so we need the resistance uh, the parasite resistance that those sheep um, give us and we never worm our sheep they're extremely healthy we don't trim their hooves they're hair sheep so they shed they don't have any wool they're really meant for the south um and it's a very mild meat it's great it's something we want to expand upon and hopefully we'll maybe be in charleston restaurants one day
3: yeah
1: <laughs> um, our pigs uh Alyssa, my partner has been raising pigs for like four years now and when we joined forces, she brought all of her pigs to our farm and we started our own breeding operation, which is a cross between the Berkshire, tr- it's more of like a European standard lard pig, because mm-hmm. we exclusively raise lard pigs. And we crossed that with an Ossabaugh Island hog, which it's a pretty much a wild type pig that its descendants come from Spain extremely fine quality hams so when we cross these two we get a little bit fattier of a meat very nicely marbled and they also have a tendency to eat more forage than a more domesticated kind of breed Mm -hmm. Um, and it's been working for us our pig operation is at the heart of how we manage fertility on our farm so we take waste from off farm, from other places. It so will take horse manure and shavings from some of these larger horse operations and you know horse shows and things like that. And uh, we work with arborist companies and they'll drop wood chips on our farm as well. And we get old hay bales and we throw all of this in a huge barn. And we allow our piglets to live in this barn for a, a certain period of time before they're old enough to go outside. Um, And we train them on the electric wire in this barn so we can rotationally graze them. And we put all of this organic matter in and they just turn it into the ultimate compost. They act as shredders and they shred everything up. So it composts easier and it integrates into our soil better. So we have these huge pits they're like deep bedded compost systems. And the side of our barn, we're able to drive in with a bucket-loaded tractor and dump about a yard of fresh shavings or the wood chips and the manure in. And the pigs will eat it. They'll tear it apart. They'll poop in it. They pee in it. We dump our water in it so it has moisture content, the perfect moisture content. And then every few months, we'll open the big gates up. And we go in with the front-end loader, and we make enormous compost piles that are like hundreds of yards. So it's really cool. And over the course of the year, we have this composting, um, cycle. And then at the end of that year, usually it's ready to go into our garden. And so all of the pigs and the chickens, they're making this compost in the barn for us. We allow it to rest and we also turn it over the course of this time. And we'll add other things into it because we do chicken butchering on the farm. We add blood to it. We add feathers to it. We'll add, you know, animal carcasses if we actually have to, um, which really helps us with like not having to import any type of nutrients and fertility. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we do, it's very, very minimal amount of fertilizer that we use on our crops. So all of that compost goes into the garden and in our garden we do, A no-till system that it's kind of been standardized and it's starting to be standardized by some of these farmers around the world and uh, one of them is Charles Dowding and uh, he's an older gardener from uh, Britain and from England and uh, he's just terrific. He inspired a lot of farmers to take it to another level and Um, There are a couple other farmers out there who are doing this, so essentially what we do is we create this really thick compost mulch that's about this thick, and that goes across our bed, and we plant directly into that with an automatic seeding system, or we put transplants in, and it decreases our irrigation by... I'm not sure because we don't, we hardly irrigate, but mm-hmm. we establish our crops with irrigation and then we pretty much don't irrigate for the rest of the time that that particular crop's in the ground. And we have extremely sandy soil here, so there's really no other way for us to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've had some no till beds in production for four years now, and the results are unbelievable because the soil always stays loose and never gets compacted. We have immense amounts of microorganisms in our soil, and that's really what it's all about, is our microorganism conservation plan that we have, which is do not till the soil, do not put chemicals on the soil, don't spray harmful chemicals whatsoever. So we do not use any biocides, we don't use harmful fertilizers, we don't use Roundup, anything like that. We're growing plants in natural organic matter and increasing the carbon in the soil instead of decreasing the carbon in the soil every single year. And it's, I think that this uh, style of vegetable farming is going to be the new norm in the next like 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think people are going to have an option because there's so much soil depletion going on that we can't continue to farm the way we are, everything has to go over to no-till. Even the big guys in the farming these days who are using combines and tractors, they have no-till equipment. They are getting grants, they're getting government funding to be able to implement these uh, no-till practices even if it's large scale. Um, there's really no benefit whatsoever to tilling unless you have to establish a plot so when we expand our garden we'll use machinery to be able to work up the soil enough to be able to create our beds and everything
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and you know it's been working pretty well for us so we have all the animal systems which are the beef lamb pork chicken we have chickens for eggs and then we also have a mushroom operation that is run by our great friends, Ben and Rebecca, um, who I saw on your sheet. David Harper was on here. They know yeah. David Harper really well. They, yeah. I think they apply for some of the same grants together, so which has been great. Uh, we've been applying for a lot of grants uh, for this mushroom operation. And it's a very unique thing because we're growing mushrooms in a shipping container. Okay. So we take all of these... Sh- old pharmaceutical-grade shipping containers with closed cell foam already insulated. We put a floor and we divide the walls up inside and we can build scientific laboratories in these containers and have a completely sterile environment. Um, We're expanding into our second container this year, which is pretty exciting. So, we, yeah, there have been some issues with other local uh, mushroom growers not being able to stay in business and it all worked out at the right time for us to be able to come into doing this and it's just another item that we can include every single week for our customers and um, they really like the diversity and there are a lot of health benefits from you know organic mushroom production nice. so that being said we have all of these different enterprises on the farm. It's extremely chaotic and crazy from an outside perspective. And it's taken a long time for us to build the systems and we're still building these systems to be, um, you know, easy to manage. So another part of making this easy to manage is our, um, the way we sell our products. So, we have a CSA, which is a community-supported agriculture program. We call it a farm-share program because people are really investing in us, and they're giving us a lot of income-based security by giving us a deposit and signing up and saying, hey, we're going to be your customer every single week. So since we have such a diversity of plants and animals on the farm, we needed an outlet for this. And it's really difficult to sell to restaurants who might just want one pig. Well, we have a pig, we have a lamb, we have chicken, we have a ton of stuff to get rid of in this week. So we would have to go to like several restaurants, we would have to go to maybe three or four farmers markets. And realistically, it's not worth it for a farmer to really leave the farm unless they're making like a minimum of $2,000. Mm-hmm. Because even for a small farm, because it just simply costs so much money for us to run the operations. So we, after this whole COVID-19 thing, we already had our CSA model. We were already implementing this in Aiken, South Carolina, and also in Columbia. And since COVID-19, this it really allowed us to expand. And the week that we had the farmer's market shut down was the week that we expanded our CSA.
3: Mm.
1: And we had a bunch of people who... You know, we're just kind of referred to us from their friends, which is terrific. We really like to have that community atmosphere. So that kind of got us over the hump. So we didn't have to go to the farmer's market. And then we just got flooded with customers, um, partially because I got on the news. (laughs) It's kind of fun.
2: There you go. And
1: we had all these people wanting to sign up. So now we have a waiting list for this program. And every single week we have 75 and we have $100 shares. And people get a combination of meats, usually two things. It's like this week, I think it was like um, a whole chicken, chicken breast and a pack of bacon or a pack of sausage. And then we have about $25 worth of vegetables, which include like baby salad greens, baby kales that are like fully washed and processed and dried. So the shelf life is like three times as long on our salad greens than what you would be getting from California. Mm -hmm. We have all of the stuff that you would normally get at the grocery store, you know, cucumbers, onions, carrots, all of these things. We grow such a diversity of crops on our farm for the CSA. And then we also have eggs and we have mushrooms and we're unable to actually keep up with the egg production at this time. We have, we did a little bit of work with another farm and we got them to do some direct retail beef. And there are a lot of farmers out there who have beef herds or Flocks of sheep, and they're not selling directly to consumers. And we met these young farmers and we encouraged them to, you know, to do direct to consumer sales. Forget about selling to the big livestock markets and all this, and it's saved their business. And we are the increase of our CSA, you know, we had an increase in this egg demand. So they started a huge egg layer flock, and we were able to pair with them. And that's really what it's all about is being able to have more farmers that are out there who are working with each other to make sales. And we buy like 20 dozen eggs, but I think it'll probably go up to like a hundred dozen eggs here soon from them. Wow. Really great for them. Every single week to have that security, they're getting a paycheck from us and our customers love the free range, non GMO, terrific eggs that they get
0: moved awesome. every
1: single day, but behind these wonderful organic grass-fed cows, it's like the most terrific thing. <laughs> well, um, it sounds
0: like you set up a really idyllic place, you know, when we think of farms and um, even the packaging on those store-bought eggs are kind of... Uh, This little farm with all these different animals and different crops. And so part of us grows up thinking that all farms are like this, but I think people are really opening their eyes to realize that um, industrial farming is not like this at all. So do you mind spending a moment like comparing uh, high intensity industrial farming with your permaculture regenerative style of farming and um, I, I had mentioned to you before we started recording that I had uh, read an article that, well, there's a lot of people coming out saying that the way we do high-intensity meat production is only going to make us more susceptible for pandemics like COVID-19 due to the living conditions of the animals and how all of that is treated. So how let's talk about the comparison so people get a better idea of the benefits of regenerative farming over the current high intensity uh, conglomerated um, centralized farming system that we have now
1: okay so there there are a number one is there are a lot of different farms out there that are contributing to the current model that we have right there are so many different contractors that work for larger corporations you could have a, like we have farmers down the street from us who, they only have like a 1,000 acres, maybe 2,000 acres on beef on production, right? But all the beef that they produce, all the beef steers every year, they get trucked on semi-trucks into these feedlot situations, Mm -hmm. right? And then the feedlots also buy grain from certain farmers. They might only have a, a couple thousand acres or 500 acres in production. They might not be big farmers, but it takes many, many, many farmers to allow us to feed people the way we're feeding them right now. Right. And it's not like your neighbor who has a couple hundred acres of corn and a combine is an evil guy. He's really not mm-hmm. like, the bottom line is he's never been taught a different way and he's doing the best that he can, to, you know, feed people. And it's an honorable thing that these conventional farmers are doing. We just do it in a different way. Mm -hmm. We work just as hard, probably a lot harder than they do because they're sitting in their climate-controlled cabs and we're on the ground on our feet every day. But, you know, so you have all of these players that are kind of within that sphere. So you have these small farmers and then you have giant corporations that kind of, like, rule and dictate what those farmers can do, right? So you have, like, a Monsanto and Syngenta corporations and they sell seeds to these small farmers and they have to follow specific laws and everything. And you know what? I'm not, I don't necessarily think GMOs are bad because it does prevent a lot of, um, you know, it decreases the use of biocides on those crops. So it is beneficial in some way because you have less chemicals like leaching into the water supply and less bugs being, affected especially like bees and birds and things like that affected by these really harmful chemicals it does decrease you know that um so the thing is with these it takes many many small farmers to have a big feedlot operation and you have like thousands of cattle that are confined in very very small areas they're eating grain which means that they're you know, farting all of the time. There's a lot of methane production from that. We have methane production on our farm, but the thing is the way that we do it, we actually have decreased levels of carbon from our cows. Our cows are carbon negative. Their, their cows require a lot of petroleum and fossil fuels to feed them through the grain production and through silage production and hay production. And you're talking about a huge scale, right? And these animals are sitting in feedlots where they're just ankle deep, maybe knee deep in certain cases and they're on manure. It's not mud, it's manure. Uh, you know, you have chicken houses with tens of thousands of chickens in them all side by side. They're all fed the same thing. There's no access to sunlight. You know, they have to pump these animals full of antibiotics to keep them alive. Um, and the pigs situation some of the, the pig farming is getting better, it's cleaner, it's more organized and things like that. Um, but you still have some of these big like Smithfield type of corporations who have pigs in confinement houses where they're on metal grates and giant gashes and slits in their feet and the mother sows can't move and it's animal abuse pretty much. Not just that, but when the animals are sick, they're not well. They do not have access to clean water, clean air, sunshine, grass, bugs. You have to think about all of the different things that these animals need. Like when you create an aquarium, you are trying to mimic an ecosystem for that particular fish and you want it to literally look like the ocean. So why aren't we doing that for these animals? You know, why are the pigs in confinement houses when wild pigs are out there running around on... Hundred thousands of acres and rooting up all kinds of different stuff in the woods. And you have bison that are grazing on, in Yellowstone, constantly moving all of the time. They're not sitting knee deep in their own fecal matter. Um, and that's the main difference with what we're doing. We're looking intimately at how these animals would naturally interact with nature, and we're replicating those natural systems in our domesticated farming systems, Mm
2: -hmm. which
1: in turn give us a lot of resiliency in the systems that we're building. So, um, you know, there will eventually be a transition from this monocropped and confined animal situation. And the thing is, there has to be money to be gained from it. Mm -hmm. And we need to start looking at understanding how to transition certain farmers into more regenerative practices. And as I mentioned before, there are uh, you know no-till seed drills and things like that, that farmers are already using and enacting. There are a lot of farmers who are already starting to cover crop and add organic matter into the soil in the season when they're in fallow. It's not just dry dirt that's blowing away in the wind. You know, there are a lot of farmers who are starting to enact little things over time. We're just not doing it fast enough. and our model is to be able to scale our business to be enormous. We want to be huge. We want many, many, many farmers to be involved in what we're doing. And we don't personally want to make a ton of money from it. We just want to see the benefit in our community, in the planet, and we want to make a good living at it. We want to have health insurance. We want to have the basics in our life taken care of. Mm -hmm. Um, And what we're really planning on doing is taking what we're doing and looking deeper and deeper into the natural world to understand how we can replicate ecosystems at a huge scale. So what we want to do is plant nut trees and fruit trees and all of the different associated plants in a wild ecosystem, and we'll plant them on hedgerows on the scale of thousands of acres so instead of having corn and soy and wheat and barley and all the things that we use in our livestock feed now, we'll be feeding nuts and seeds to our animals instead from in the form of chestnuts, pecans, hazelnuts, you know, um, what am I forgetting? Hickory nuts, acorns.
0: Walnuts. <laughs> Do they eat walnuts?
1: Oh, I, I don't know if I can grow them here. Maybe
0: I have we have two walnut trees on our property. Do you? Mm-hmm. Do they work? Yeah, yeah, they're um yeah, they're coming back. They obviously they only produce fruit every couple of years, but um I'm looking up at the walnut trees this year and I think I think this is going to be the year. I feel like I put a lot of love into the land and they're going to give me something nice.
1: That's terrific.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, anyways, we need to pretty <laughs> much what we're doing, we want to create this forest ecosystem, right? Where you have a giant canopy layer, these huge nut trees that go above, and then right below that, you have like The the trees at the next layer, which would be like your apple trees and your pear trees and cherries and uh, loquat trees, mulberry trees, all trees that span the entire season and they all fruit at different times.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. And then you get down lower and we have shrubs like currants and gooseberries and blueberries and things like that. And below that, we have our vines that come up. So we're growing like passion fruit and kiwis and gourds and squashes and things like that and then in between those giant hedgerows you can have you know your forage based blends like that's what we call it in ranching so you're going to have you know your clover Mm -hmm. you're going to have alfalfas you're going to have um winter peas rye grasses and then you can integrate other things depending on what crops you have so like a pig for instance we would plant in between those hedgerows in the pasture space we would be planting tons of squashes and pumpkins and things like that for them to go in and eat that all all year long we can store squashes in the winter so we get a really long shelf life out of them like last year we got a ton of we had like trailer loads of pumpkins that we got mm-hmm. and we'll get that from people who you know people don't want their pumpkins after halloween so we just take all the pumpkins from like the local you know store big stores yeah. um, Right now, we do have a relationship with our bur- a local brewery, and we get all of their spent grain, nice. um, so that's kind of cool. But the bottom line is, like, it's not taking place on our farm. That The growing of the calories that go into the chickens and that go into the pigs, that does not come from our farm. We're not growing those grain crops. And we want to be able to build a system where if we lost all of those grain crops for some reason, we have built-in resiliency within this hedgerow food forest system to where we can passively feed those animals without having to use grain. Mm -hmm. And I think we can do it.
0: (laughs) Well, you're like a shining example. I think that, you know... uh, the amount of work you've put into this is just impressive and I certainly really want to go down there and see it myself you know I'm doing a little mini regenerative gardening thing here and we're just starting out in the journey but um I think leading by example is just a great way instead of hypothesizing about what can be done you're you're leading the way so that's fantastic you
1: always think about stuff and people can get around and have a glass of wine and talk all they want to but you know what, we have a cold beer at the end of the day because we're really tired. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. But it's a good tired, right? It must be a fulfilling sort of tired that they're working in this, in, you know, creating these systems and working in land. You
1: Absolutely. Know. And I think our guiding philosophy on all of this is human beings took a path of destruction, right? Mm-hmm. And we're really interesting organisms on this planet because we can think for ourselves and we have critical thinking skills, and it can allow us to change the course of history. And we took one path, and that one path was the easy way. It was the way that allowed us to industrialize food, it allowed us to rapidly grow, grow a population in a country, and it allowed us to have manufacturing. And people were are so used to having an easy way of doing things in an easy life because of the modernization of agriculture. And for us, we view it as we could have taken a different path. Human beings could have increased the g- diversity that we have on this planet. We didn't have to deforest all of these forests. We could have selectively cut And we could have planted all of these fruit trees over the past hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of years since the dawn of agriculture. We didn't have to continually domesticate crops. We could have continued in a more horticultural pathway that allowed us to increase the diversity of plants, fungi, animals, and bugs on this planet. And we took the opposite path. We decreased the diversity. But right now it is, you know, it. All possibilities are open and we can change that every single day just by doing little things. There, mm-hmm. These are just little things like, you know, when I drive around in a city, I will commonly just get out of my truck and grab some seeds off of a tree or make a couple prunings. If I see a mulberry tree or something, and I'll take that home and root it. And the next thing you know, in a month, that tree's outside growing. Mm-hmm. And we'll bring in divert, plant diversity from all different areas. And people need to start doing that. It's very, very simple. Like you can implement community gardens wherever,
3: mm-hmm.
1: it's just a matter of putting the work into doing it. Yeah.
0: I think there's also a disconnect. I think uh, modern society has disconnected us from nature. I know part of my journey is actually learning all this stuff. Like I wouldn't necessarily know a mulberry tree in the city in order to take a clipping and root it, but I've been educating myself on things I can forage in my yard. So, you know, I can get oyster mushrooms out the back and we've got blackberries down the road and, 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 uh, you know, weeds that we can eat and that's been an interesting process. And, but I think the population as a general is, is so disconnected from that, that we have to bridge that gap somehow do you have i mean maybe that's part of your education of bringing people onto the farm is that part of it
1: yeah it's definitely part of it and i i think you can sum that up in the term nature deficit disorder people have such a disconnection from nature that they're scared of it Mm mm-hmm you know, I'm, I think a good example of this, we're all scared and terrified of mushrooms. Don't touch that mushroom. You're going to mm-hmm,
3: die. Mm-hmm.
1: But like there really aren't that many toxic mushrooms out there.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Like you could grab one that's going to give you renal failure, but <laughs> most, most likely not. And are
3: yeah.
1: But the thing is that it, you can break that apart in every single way. And, uh, You know, people just need to get outside more. And I don't necessarily think it starts with gardening like it could. Mm -hmm. It really starts with just going on a hike, Mm
2: -hmm. going
1: walking in the woods and doing it on a regular basis. And that's like the first step. And then maybe grow a garden in your backyard. You start to identify some of the trees on your daily hiking, you know, that you're doing. And not just that, but you're getting exercise. There's so many people who are just sitting on their couch all the time.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: you can't expect to change the world if you're just sitting around.
0: Yeah, well, I you think to this be comes in like really the- good
1: shape to do it.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think part of this comes back actually to. Um, I don't think I coined this term, but I, I can't remember who's called it, but our convenience culture, which is something you were talking about, like taking the easy way or taking something that's that has more longevity. And our whole, uh, our whole system is programmed to be hyper-convenient because when things are easy to do, people are going to do them and that equals actually spending more money. And when we have the sort of profit system that we have now where that overtakes everything, you want that person sitting on the couch doing nothing except for online shopping or whatever it may be. So our entire society has kind of unfortunately made this convenience culture. But I think what I'm finding personally is you don't get the same rewards out of things that are hyper convenient. Like part of the reward is going through the process. Like is going through the drive-thru at McDonald's more satisfying than spending an hour at my stove cooking something that, you know, it's at some point, Fundamentally there's there's a difference there. But it's very hard to break people out of those habits. You have you have to have the personal will to do that. You can't force someone to do that. But um yeah. No, you can't,
1: but I think it, it also comes down to like making people stronger. And you know, we live in a really weak culture. Most people are very weak mentally and mm-hmm. physically, and it's about hardening yourself up a little bit more and doing things that take you out of your comfort zone every single day. And you know, it's good to be uncomfortable because mm-hmm. guess what? After a while of being uncomfortable, you're not uncomfortable anymore. You get mm-hmm. used to it.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: you know, early on when I was like doing a real hard labor and stuff, like my body hurt a lot and it just doesn't anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> you, know, you, get, well, you get stronger, your body adapts to it. You know you don't think about getting dirty you don't think about the dust or the smell of manure like that's just part of your life and you know we we can adapt to situation any situation as a human being almost faster than any other organism we're very very quick to adapt we can eat different foods you can go vegan to going and eating meat Mm
3: -hmm. you know
1: like it your body can adapt to almost anything and People yeah. just need to really start to push themselves a little bit more and figure out what they can do in their own lives to start moving in this direction of just living more resiliently. And I say that with a lot of intention because I don't believe we should live in a sustainable way. We don't want to sustain the pet like our life right now. Like mm-hmm. if we sustain the you know, the direction that we're moving in, well, we're gonna end our civilization. So <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's. We need that's, to take
1: all the steps necessary to like make things more resilient. From starting at your home, like you can grow so much food in your house. Mm-hmm. You can catch all the rainwater catchment off of your roof. You can put solar panels on top of your roof. You can start talking to your neighbors. Like that's a really big one. Yeah, getting <laughs> yeah. them to grow certain things that you're not growing and trading with them, and working on some of these various code issues that we have in the cities where you know you you can't have goats or chickens and things mm-hmm. like that. So there are a lot of things that people can just do to focus like in the home, which we call in permaculture zone 1 and like zone 0. Mm-hmm.
2: It's
1: like that's the in you know the area that's in and around your home, focus on that first and then you can start to focus on like getting out into the community and making change that way.
0: mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Yeah, you said some interesting points. I was taking a like a soil advocacy style course, uh, and they brought up this idea of. Um we need to not be sustainable. Sustainable is such a hot topic term, sustainable, sustainable. And you've expressed it exactly. In this course, what they're talking to us us about is is we're in a uh, degenerative uh, sort of system right now. So where this is a good place to be, we're way down here. So if we sustain down here, like you said, we can't sustain down here. We need to regenerate up to a better level and then talk about sustaining if we come back up here and that was the first time I'd heard of that because sustainable certainly is the buzzword now like sustainable sustainable what like you said what sort of what sort of life are we sustaining at this point if we're Smithfield
1: su- farm is sustainable what's this Smithfield farms is sustainable
0: there you go that's a perfect example exactly you don't want to be
1: sustainable
0: mm-hmm Um no. Mm-hmm. And you touched a little bit on uh, like city codes. I, I wanted to see if you wanted to illuminate some of the code issues that you encounter when it comes to this style of farming. Um, you said, uh, well, we'd spoken previously that there was a bigger, bigger demand for meat because we have had these meat plants shut down, but there are USDA regulations that maybe prevent you from scaling your business up faster, and I don't think many of us know about these. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: oh yeah sure um so i don't think this necessarily has to do with like code enforcement and code violations but it does have to do with state and federal meat inspection based regulations for farmers mm-hmm. so which is a huge issue right because and i'll break it down so we can just start with chicken so Like, federally, I believe, like, people are allowed to butcher up to 20,000 chickens a year on their own property. But in the state of South Carolina, you have to have a certain facility that meets the requirements that Clemson University has proposed for 20,000 bird butchery. And so on our farm, we can only process 1,000 birds every single year um, because we have an outdoor butcher set up. We're on a concrete slab, we have overhead watering, we have professional butcher tables, we have a professional plunker system, the whole nine yards, but we can only process a thousand birds. So that's a huge limiting factor for us. If we were able to just simply have like a 5,000 bird processing, sorry, <laughs> on the farm every single year, then it would be a game changer for us financially. I don't know why we can't do that. I really don't. I don't see it as a health and safety issue whatsoever. And in fact, people are terrified of microbes. And I think this is where it comes from. They're terrified of E. coli and salmonella and all of these things. But I guarantee you, if you take a bacterial swab from any of our butcher tables and you compare that with an indoor butcher situation, our system is way cleaner.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And yes, there is dust, there is animal particulate matter probably floating in the air. But you know what, when you ingest that stuff, your body should be strong enough to handle it. And being outside, we have fresh air. There's a lot to having fresh airflow. You don't want something that's completely confined. The only reason to have indoor space is if you have a fly problem and then the flies can transmit diseases and stuff. But if you don't have a fly issue, it's not a big deal. So like in South Carolina, we really don't have any flies in the winter and early spring and late fall. It's a perfect time for us to like be butchering chickens on the farm. And we process a lot of our animals for our own consumption during that time period. Mm -hmm. So they could maybe, you know, make some laws around, Oh, Hey, like you cannot butcher chickens from this month to this month, but during six months of the year, you're allowed to butcher, you know, up to two three thousand birds. Like a thousand birds, is just very limiting. If mm-hmm. you sell a chicken at twenty dollars, then you know it's only like twenty thousand bucks. Mm-hmm. So it costs like it, you, you're looking at like fifty percent profit margins with that enterprise. So like you're only making ten grand.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I listened to another podcast this week that was talking to a regenerative farmer in the Shenandoah Valley in um, Virginia and. Bill Salatin? Yes, exactly. That was one that Joe. Someone had sent that to me. The Joe Rogan podcast, and he was talking about similar USDA restrictions on selling meat. That um, your neighbor could buy a piece of meat from you. And this, I don't know if this is Virginia or US. uh, If he. Yeah, if he butchered a cow, he uh, the neighbor could pay him for that cow. But uh, well, he'd have to sell the whole cow or the half cow. But if he actually butchered it into steaks, the his neighbor could buy it. But he would be in trouble for selling it. It's illegal for him to sell cuts of meat. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. So we cannot butcher any large animals on the farm and have that legal at any scale okay it's not one two we can't do it period end of story and this week i took one of my beef cows in the butcher on monday and i tried to get an appointment for my next one and it's not going to be until november oh wow so how am i supposed to feed people if i can't get any animals butchered
0: yeah that's that's a huge roadblock right there
1: Oof. so and the thing is like it's also, it costs a lot of money to have a legitimate butchering facility, even if it's just a state regulated one, Mm
3: -hmm.
1: you know, you're looking at like hundreds of thousands of dollars, Mm
3: -hmm.
1: you know, and we're definitely going, we have to build our own butcher facility on the farm with the way that we're planning on scaling our operation. There's no way that we can't do what we're doing and we continually expand without being able to open our own butcher facility because we're so limited by the meat processing that we have. We have one USDA butcher in the whole state of South Carolina. Oh. We had two of them, but the other one got shut down because their facility was run horribly. They were smoking cigarettes inside and it, they had, I, I talked to other farmers where they had animals sitting in cages in the back for weeks on end.
0: Oh, God. And that's...
1: And, but And that's why government regulations exist. Right. Is because people like that should not be in a, <laughs> operating a business. It's not a safe way to do it. But like Joel Salatin says, and I believe this because our CSA model promotes this, is having connection with the customers. If there were zero regulations when it came to this whole meat processing things and I could butcher animals on my farm and legally sell that without inspection all every single one of my customers would come to the farm and see the butcher setup there's no hiding it from my customers cuz we have an open door, if you are our customer we have an open door policy you just need to make you know a scheduled time to come out and see the farm we show everybody how we butcher chickens mm-hmm. and the thing is there's accountability with community, especially with this CSA-based model. People know you. You show up to their doorstep every single week. There's a face-to-face interaction, and they expect to have safe, clean food from you. You know, And the practices that we have, in my opinion, are a lot safer than the ones that the USDA has.
0: Yeah.
1: So it's a really big issue because we do not have any processes to get our meat done.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And
1: like we, right now we have like 100, like 200 pigs on the farm and we're having a lot of trouble getting those pigs butchered and processed because of COVID-19.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, you know, our, we probably have half the staff right now at our butcher facility. And there have been so many farmers who want to butcher more animals locally now because the big processors are shutting down or like something's happening with the middleman distribution, complicated, convoluted ridiculous farming system that we have more ranchers are getting, trying to schedule beef and p- pigs to get butchered locally. So people like me who've had established businesses for years, we can't get our animals done. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't really know what to do about it. What do we do? Just stop butchering animals while well, our customers need their food. So if mm-hmm. it came down to it, I guess I would just butcher the animals and deliver it to their doorstep and potentially get arrested. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. but I don't think it's going to come to that. We have a close relationship with our butcher and we are of somewhat priority to them. Mm -hmm. So we'll kind of see how things go, but the bottom line is there, you know, if the government is going to be involved in our life, which I don't believe that they should be involved in our life, Mm -hmm. maybe when it comes to other certain social programs and things like that. But when it comes to what I put in my hand that goes into my mouth, there should be no regulation around that. And that goes for drugs and that goes for food.
0: Well, I mean, they certainly haven't been good at protecting us from uh, harmful things that are going in our mouth. I mean, how many drugs are recalled constantly and, you know, the processed food that comes out under the label of food, you know, they've kind of screwed all that up. But um, as our food systems are breaking down because of COVID-19, I wanted to talk to you, like, how can we envision the future? We've talked about this with a few other podcast guests. We spoke to Pooja Ganguly about uh, food systems. And then we mentioned David Harper, who is about um, from Land in Common, which addresses that um, the land issue you talked about, where there's it's hard for young people who want to go into farming to get onto land just because the cost barrier is so high. So, um, David particularly spoke about developing bioregions, and you seem to be well positioned for Aiken and Columbia, maybe even Augusta. So, do you see these bioregions, or, or how do you see these? is this a a positive way to move forward in the future? And do you see roadblocks in the way?
1: Um, As far as like land access programs and things like that?
0: Like basically, I mean, my understanding of bioregions is to, you know, your farm would feed the surrounding area. This farm would feed it instead of us pulling food from California and New Zealand and also Uh, focusing and also focusing on growing uh, native foods instead of you know bringing in all these european or african or whatever plants that we seem to to bring in as well
1: yeah so well number one is yes we have to completely localize the entire food system because it just Mm -hmm. doesn't make any sense whatsoever to be importing food anywhere there's no reason we shouldn't be like shipping chicken from the u.s to china to get processed and then yeah Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. When I like, lived in Scotland, you Scotland. get
0: your, you get your lamb from New Zealand, and that always just blew my mind. You know, it's ridiculous.
1: There aren't that many lamb farmers. That's why we really need to grow more sheep here.
0: Well, I mean, in Scotland, but, especially, is surrounded by sheep, so I really don't know why they were bringing in New Zealand lamb into Scotland. It was who knows.
1: <laughs> so, as far as the bio thing goes, yes. What I uh, we have to localize food, but I think like the way that it will be shaped is that. I think it's necessary for like 20% of the population to be farming. Okay. Because I was looking at it this way, like all the people who are involved in my farm, I have, and we're feeding like 50 people a week, like 50 families every single week, like a huge portion of their groceries. It's me, mm-hmm. it's Alyssa, it's Joey as our three main farmers. And then we have two volunteers who are at the farm almost every single day. mm mm-hmm. Uh, And then we have two guys who work at my grain mill and they get all my non-GMO grain. I have like two non-GMO grain farmers in addition to the mill workers. Um, So it's like nine people. And, you know, let's say there's probably one person in there I'm forgetting, but let's just say 10. Mm -hmm. It takes 10 people to feed 50 people. 50 families a week like that's 20% of the population that we require in our system but there's so many more people who are involved like we have a seed we have seed production farmers where we buy our seed from there are hundreds of people who grow our seeds and we buy seed from them what about the guys who make the vacuum seal bags that we use for or the butcher paper or You know, I ordered a bunch of fruit trees this year from online, like there are nursery specialists who are growing those fruit trees. The list goes on about people who are involved in the farming system to be able to feed families directly. And it's going to require so many more farmers and many more farmers per acre. And that's the thing. You need more farmers per acre of land. We don't need as much land as we're currently using to produce food. It's just too much land. Mm -hmm. We need more farmers on less acreage focusing on smaller systems because if we do that, that means all of these farmlands that are in corn and wheat and soy production, they don't have to exist anymore. And that means that can go back into wilderness
3: Mm
1: -hmm. and we can put trees in there. The deer population will go up and we have more hunting resources, for example, but with our bioregion, we will be able to produce so much food. And it doesn't matter if you're where you are, really. Like, it, it's just going to dictate, your climate just dictates what you can't grow
3: mm-hmm. at
1: what point in the year, right? Like, you can grow food all year long in Vermont. And mm-hmm. uh, you can grow food all year long in Canada. You're just going to have to use high tunnels. And in the summer, you're going to make sure, you know, you're going to have to have all these preparations to be able to get your animals through the wintertime. Mm -hmm. where we are we have a lot more diversity but we have other problems that we have in this ecosystem because of a lack of winter we have all these problematic invasive grasses and weeds and things like that that make it very difficult to farm here but for example like we can produce like you know 50 percent of the fruit and vegetables that you see in the store and Mm -hmm. people that's huge like we can grow more than that. It's just, they're different foods than what people are used to. Mm -hmm. So you might not be eating avocados, but you know what, you're going to have currants and gooseberries and blueberries and Asian pear trees and persimmons and things like that, you know, just like unique fruits that people are not used to. And I think that's kind of going to be the thing. If we're going to like move in the right direction is making it, like seasonally appropriate food for people to be eating um i think that's a huge thing and moving away from eating chicken yeah i don't think we should be eating chicken because it requires such a massive amount of grain i think we can move pigs in the direction of having them like eat less grain and slowly no grain but i think You can only have a certain amount of chickens like on your farm. Every person could probably look after a couple of chickens, but every person, every family needs to have chickens in their backyard. It's not something that is meant to be had on a large landscape because if people just had all their food waste distributed into their chicken run, the chickens wouldn't need any food.
0: Yeah, we're doing that right now. We just got 15 chickens, which were... um, my father-in-law's and he passed away in November. And so since then we've been trying to build the coop and all that. So it is, uh, yeah, now we have to prioritize food scraps for the chickens and food scraps for the compost pile. So, (laughs) and we get like, we get like two dozen eggs a week and we don't really have like, I think five of the chickens are older and they don't lay anymore, you know? So they're just doing their thing. It's pretty cool.
1: (laughs) So I, I think that like, we just need to focus on like what we can do essentially. And like mm-hmm. What can we do in the region that we're in, and how do we allow people to access that food?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Well,
1: um, hopefully, with,
0: like hopefully, Woodlands Valley—sorry, Woodland Valley Farms—will be leading the way in trying to. Because you're leading the way in so much. It sounds like it was exciting for me to find a regenerative farm in South Carolina. Uh, I so. think
1: we are. Yeah, it's. Um, I think we have a lot of work to do, and we need to become more professional and many ways and but that comes with time like we're young farmers and ranchers on Mm -hmm. and we're all under the age of like 32 Mm -hmm. so um i think that you need to have more people coming into farming who are learning and they're younger and they're making the mistakes that we're making Mm -hmm. and those all those people are going to be the leaders of the future Mm -hmm. Uh, you know we need farmers to be heroes Mm -hmm. essentially and We need them to be able to stand up for wildlife conservation issues. We need them to stand up, you know, for our rights and our freedoms really that we have in this country to be able to process our own animals. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a huge issue. It really is. And I think the biggest thing that people can do is right now is just go and connect with a local farmer and say, I want to spend my money with you. What can you grow for me? Mm -hmm. Because there's so many times where we have people, Oh, we want this or that. Like, but you only want it like one time. Yeah. You know, like we need consistent customers to keep our business going. And like, I would do anything if somebody came to me and they're like, Oh, Hey, we just want to give you a thousand dollars right now. And like, please grow all these chickens for me. Cause like, I just want you to grow my chickens. Like there are so many farmers out there who would be like, please, like, please, you know, <laughs> you just need to find those farmers and let them know that you want to be their customer. That's the biggest thing. And then figure out how you can help them too. Like we need volunteers at our farm all the time. We had um, like 35 volunteers come out on Sunday mm-hmm. and people just, you know, our CSA members, they're rocking it. They're, love what we're doing. They want to come out and support what we're doing. They helped us weed the garden and we had a huge barbecue. We butchered a pig on the farm. We ate it on the farm ourselves. We barbecued it. That's totally legal. Mm -hmm. But, and you know, there there are ways to get around these things. Like, I hate to say it, but like black market stuff, it might be the new norm. I mean, who's going to arrest you for like selling vegetables to your neighbors without like some like license or something like no one's going to report you right you know these are just bureaucratic people who are trying to steal your money
0: yeah and we certainly they don't have any enforcement behind it i mean there's so many laws and regulations out there that are not enforced so no doubt
1: but did we miss anything
0: no chase i think this has been great tell us how people can connect with you and woodland valley farms
1: okay well you can connect with us on two different instagrams one is Farmer Lissy L-I-S-S-I-E on Instagram. That is my wonderful partner. Mm-hmm. And our other Instagram is Woodland Valley Farms. Mm-hmm. And you can also find us on woodlandvalleyfarms.com or just Google me and you can see us on the news.
0: <laughs> nice. What what uh what news station were you
1: on? I think it was like Augusta News 4 or something.
0: Okay. And you guys are located in Jackson, South Carolina,
3: correct? We're in
1: Jackson. Yeah, I think there, there are a couple articles written about us online and stuff. So you can check it all out. We're hoping to launch our YouTube channel in about a year from now. So
0: awesome! We'll stay keep us in, Yeah, keep us in the loop. And I will um, share links to the articles uh, with our audience. It will be in the show notes as well. And, um, and I really appreciate your time. It is really fun talking about uh, regenerative agriculture especially from someone who's living, breathing, and doing it. Um, and so uh, keep up the good work and you know, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for interviewing me. I really appreciate it. Okay, thank night. you.
0: Thank you, Chase.
1: Bye. Bye.
0: What did you think of that? Be sure to follow Chase and Alyssa on Instagram to see fun farm pics and follow their story as they continue to grow. If you enjoyed this content, please be sure to share it with your friends. Take a screenshot and add it to your stories. Follow us on Facebook and share our posts, and subscribe to our YouTube channel so you can see our smiling faces. Be sure to tag us in your posts. Even better, if you'd like to support the Eco Interviews project of sharing the stories of people making positive changes for the planet and humanity, donate on Patreon. You can find the link by going to www.eco-interviews.com and clicking on the podcast in the main menu. Thanks for your support.